Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's webinar, a major EPA announcement in discussion with EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you for participating in today's program today. So now let's get straight to the program. We're, we're pleased to welcome Andrew Wheeler, Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency to the Heritage Foundation. Under EPA Administrator Wheeler, who is the 15th Administrator of the EPA, the agency has quite simply gotten things done. More important, it has gotten things done the right way. EPA has improved our environment while, among other things, respected the rule of law, not ignored it, as the agency has done sometimes in the past. The agency has applied the principles of federalism that are embodied in the major federal environmental statutes, such as the Clean Water Act, and promoted transparency in how agency decisions are made to improve policy outcomes and increase the public's faith in the agency's work. Mr. Wheeler and the EPA have been unwavering in their fight to properly implement and enforce our nation's environmental statutes. And make no mistake, it has been a fight. The left and many media outlets have been constantly on the attack, including inexcusably fighting efforts to promote transparency at the agency. The EPA is currently trying to ensure that only sound science is used in regulatory decision-making. In fact, this has been a long-standing bipartisan objective. But now that the EPA is actually implementing transparency and trying to filter out junk science, some of the left don't like this one bit. And to his credit, Mr. Wheeler has not backed down. And like with his efforts to promote transparency in the use of science, the EPA is also promoting transparency when it comes to regulatory analysis. Instead of playing games of benefit-cost analysis, the EPA is ensuring that the agency uses sound analysis. Regulations should not be predetermined decisions that are justified by manipulating regulatory analysis. In his tenure as EPA Administrator, Mr. Wheeler has overseen an agency that has achieved many measurable environmental improvements and finalized critical regulations. His success is a reflection of his strong and principled leadership. And now it's my honor to welcome uh, Administrator Wheeler. Thank you for that introduction, Darren. And I want to thank Heritage, Fonta Heritage Foundation for inviting me to speak to you. I am here today to remind you all of a promise made to the American people, a promise kept by this administration and the EPA. President Trump has made regulatory reform a top priority in his administration. And as a member of the president's cabinet, I have made that my priority as well. When I spoke to Heritage in July this year, I said that EPA should not be writing rules that operate just like laws that Congress didn't pass or that the Supreme Court didn't uphold. As you know, the agency that I have the privilege and responsibility of leading has vast rulemaking powers. Those powers are often exercised without consistency or transparency so that no matter the outcomes of elections, the American people feel left without a voice in many of the governing decisions 
that affect their lives the most. What I am describing, of course, is well known to friends of the Heritage Foundation. It is the workings of the administrative state to improve the operations of the administrative state and fulfill our promises to the American people. As EPA administrator, I have sought to provide regulatory clarity, certainty, and transparency to the public. In the, fact, in the past four years, we at EPA have cut five regulations from the books for every one regulation we have added, saving taxpayers over $100 billion while still reducing pollution across the board. We have shown that you can reduce pollution and cut regulations at the same time. That is three more regulations cut for each new one added than President Trump's executive order. Moreover, at the EPA, earlier this year, we created an online clearinghouse for all of our guidance documents that are now available online, 10,000 active EPA guidance documents in a searchable database available to the public for the first time ever. In the past, you had to hire attorneys or consultants to literally come to the EPA physically, go through our physical file cabinets to look for guidance documents that applied to you. Today, those guidance documents are available online. And today, as another part of keeping this administration's promise to the American people to reform our regulatory system and provide the transparency that they've been asking for, I am happy to tell you that I have signed a new benefit cost analysis rule under the Clean Air Act. Our goal with this rule is to help the public better understand the why of a rulemaking in addition to the what. While many parts of the Clean Air Act demand that an analysis be made of costs and benefits and implementation, up to now, there have been no regulations to hold us, the EPA, accountable to a standardized process and guarantee that the public can now see how those calculations informed decisions. This has meant inconsistent rules in a disoriented private sector. By making enforceable standardized procedures for benefit cost analysis and requiring specific reporting by regulators, we will make sure that the expected effects of all significant Clean Air Act rulemakings will be shared with the American people in a consistent and transparent fashion. Significant rulemakings are defined as those with the largest annual impact on the economy, sometimes to the tune of billions of dollars. Second, those that would disproportionately affect an industry, group, or area. And third, those that are novel or relevant for other policy reasons. This rule first reinforces best practices and standards for benefit cost analysis. And second, forces regulators to communicate better with the public. The analysis requirements of this rule are consistent with the established protocols for conducting best cost analysis published by the Office of Management and Budget. Those best practices have been further elaborated in EPA's guidelines for preparing economic analysis. The analysis released with each new rule will include the best available scientific information in accordance with the best practices from the economic, engineering, physical, and biological sciences. This includes, in line with our science transparency efforts, 
making underlying data available to the public to the extent permitted by law. Which brings us to the other side of this rule, since we not only want to increase consistency and benefit cost analysis, but we also want to increase transparency in the Clean Air Act rulemaking process too. To do that, we will require in any future significant rules preamble text that regulators describe how the benefit cost analysis shaped the rulemaking. This means regulators will not only have to report the overall results of a rulemaking's benefit and cost analysis, but also explain how it influenced the final rule. In addition to this, we propose to require a separate report of the public health and welfare benefits specific to the Clean Air Act provision under which the rule is being promulgated. We will also require reports that distinguish between domestic and international benefits so that Americans can see what the regulators are doing for people here in the United States. We hope this rule will provide clarity for states, local communities, industry, and other stakeholders regarding EPA's rulemaking considerations under the Clean Air Act. I'm very proud of the hard work of the EPA that has brought us to today, as well as of the clear communication with stakeholders and an attentive American public like yourselves all along the way. In April of 2017, EPA opened a public docket to solicit feedback on President Trump's regulatory reform agenda in which we received comments about the agency's consideration of costs and benefits. In 2018, we issued an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking to solicit public input on the question of how EPA considers benefits and costs in regulatory actions. In May of last year, I issued a memo directing agency leadership to develop rules for notice and comment that would outline how EPA benefit cost analysis could be applied in a more consistent and transparent manner. All of this came together in June of this year to produce the proposed rule that gathers us here today. This rule is one more accomplishment in four years of successes at the Environmental Protection Agency. Under President Trump's leadership, we have ensured that human health and the environment are better protected today than when we took office. In the past four years, EPA has helped finance more than $40 billion in clean water infrastructure, supporting 7,100 high priority projects and 27,000 jobs. On the Superfund side, we delisted 27 Superfund sites last year, the most in any single year. And we delisted another 27 this year for the national priorities list, bringing our total to 82 Superfund sites, which is incredible for all of those communities around the country. This matches what the previous administration did in two terms in office. Our air has continued to grow easier to breathe. Air pollution in this country has fallen 7% under President Trump's leadership by the end of last year, and will no doubtedly fall even further this year. Moreover, we've been working hand in hand with local communities around the country to redesignate from non-attainment to attainment, and we have finalized 56 redesignation actions moving areas from non-attainment to attainment under the Clean Air Act. These red designations recognize improvements in air quality and health out outcomes and have helped communities across the country, setting a new record on the 56 
redesignations. As I've shared with Heritage before, when President Trump asked me to leave the EPA in July of 2018, his instructions were clear. He told me to continue to clean up the air, continue to clean up the water, and continue to deregulate to create more jobs, help create more jobs for the American public. Today, our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner, and once contaminated land is again ready for productive use. On December 2nd, we celebrated our 50th anniversary. I am confident that if our efforts for regulatory clarity and transparency are preserved, especially in rulemakings under something as important and broad reaching as the Clean Air Act, the next 50 years of protecting human health and the environment can truly be great. But this will depend on the partnership and hard work of people like you in places like the Heritage Foundation. Thank you again for the invitation to speak with you and thank you very much for joining me and the EPA to celebrate this regulatory reform success. In conclusion, I wanna say again that this is all about providing transparency to the American public. Darren, in your opening remarks, I think you characterized very well the mis uh, misperceptions and conceptions that have been promulgated by a number of activists in the environmental community and the activist media who are ignoring what we are trying to do here and mischaracterizing this. This is all about transparency and conducting our rulemakings in a transparent fashion so that everyone from environmental groups to industry to states to local governments can see what is behind our regulatory decisions. And when our regulatory decisions are out in public and everybody can see how we make our decisions, we will have better regulations that are better accepted from the entire American public. So thank you again for inviting me to host, for hosting me today and inviting me to speak on this regulation. Thank you very much, and I'll kick it back over to you, Darren. Well, thank you, Mr. Wheeler, for your remarks. And at this time, we'll have a discussion that will include questions from myself and all of you today that are uh, participating. So before I get started on the questions, I wanna encourage everybody to submit your questions using the question box on your screen. So to, to kick things off, Administrator Wheeler, um, I to pose a question that is made by critics of this of, of this rule. And why is the rule necessary if there's already existing benefit cost analysis requirements through executive orders? Well, um, as you know, and I think everybody knows, including um, prior administrations, that those uh, processes have not always been followed in the past. Um, yes, it's been a requirement, and then the executive order goes back to President Clinton. It was a Clinton executive order, and for a large part, we're codifying the Clinton executive order as a regulation now for the Clean Air Act. But by codifying it in a regulation, we are holding ourselves accountable and we must follow the regulation. So it actually even, it opens up, um, you know, a new line where, you know, any anybody can then take an action against the agency, whether it be a, an environmental group or an industry group can, you know, can hold us accountable under law for, on whether or not we follow this. And I think it's very important because you can look back at, you know, let's just pick the most obvious one, the, the mass decision of the previous administration where they didn't follow the cost benefit requirements of, of the executive order. So, you know, it hasn't always been followed in the past, but by putting it in a regulation, we will require everyone to follow it going forward. And it creates a cause of action so that the public can hold us accountable to ensure that we are following the regulation. 
So, so thanks. Um, a major problem with past EPA benefit cost analysis for the Clean Air Act rules in particular has been an over-reliance on uh, ancillary benefits or what are known as co-benefits from particulate matter. So in, in effect, the agency has moved forward with rules even though it couldn't justify regulating the pollutant that's the target of the regulation. Could, could you explain this abuse a bit and how this rule might be able to help address the abuse in the future? Certainly. So, you know, it has been abused. And again, I, I the poster child for how to how not to conduct cost benefit analysis was the Matt's decision in the Matt's regulation last last um, administration, um, where they were um, where they went forward on a regulation to reduce mercury pollution for the electric power sector. And I believe it was 98 percent of the benefits came from reducing particulate matter, not mercury. So they justified under using cost benefit for the for the regulation for co-benefits um, instead of the benefit under question. And that case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court dinged the agency for um, for the way they conducted their economic analysis. So, you know, it's it's absolutely a, a poster child case for how not to do it, which is why we went forward with our mercury um, rule earlier this year because the Supreme Court told us to take a look at the economics behind the regulation. Um, this won't be a problem in the and going forward because we do differentiate in the cost benefit regulation um, co-benefits. The agency can still take into account co-benefits, but they have to explain how they're doing that and why they're doing that in the preamble of new regulations going forward. So they have to differentiate the difference between co-benefits and um, the, benef the actual benefits of the regulation. And there's been a lot of criticism on this approach saying that we're trying to do this in order to do away with co-benefits. And we're not. The agency can still take into account co-benefits. This does not stop that. But what it does do is require the agency to be upfront on how they're addressing it. Thank you. Um, so what are some of the specific improvements that you think that this new rule achieves? Um, that's in the rule that you think otherwise didn't exist besides you know the enforceability sure the the enforceability i think is very is very key um, we also require the differentiation between the benefits here in the united states versus international benefits um, you know the american public needs to know if if they are taking on because every new regulation has costs on someone and whoever those costs are borne by are passed on if you, if, if you put costs on a particular industry, it's not necessarily that industry, they're going, to, they're going to pass it on to the consumer. So the American public has a right to know what are the benefits of the regulation. And if the benefits are improving air quality here in the United States, or if the regulation is, is um, specific for international air quality, which is still important, but we, for, we should differentiate that. So the American public knows what their, what their tax dollars, what their, um, what their personal paychecks are going to, um, as far as regulations are concerned. So I think that's a very important um, provision as well, and that is and that is new in the in the final in the final rule. Um, and you know, I I, th I think just the, the clarity and requiring it upfront yeah, um, in in the preamble of any new regulation going forward. We we also um, it is not it is not retroactive. But we do call for a guidance um, to be issued by the agency in the future to take a look at 
how um, past regulations were developed to help guide us for future regulations. So that's also very important. We've also been accused of you're using this in order to go back and do away with prior regulations, and that's not the case at all. We will uh, be issuing a guidance document as, as far as how the agency should take a look at how it was used in prior regulations to help guide us for future regulations. And that is spelled out in the final regulation as well. We received a number of comments on that issue. So that's different from the, from the proposed to the final regulation. So I want to remind everybody to please ask questions through the question box. Um, so you, this kind of relates to what you just said, but the, in the proposed rule, it asks for public, asks the public for comments on retrospective analyses of Clean Air right. Act rulemaking. How does the final rule address retrospective analysis? Again, the retrospective analysis will be done by a, a guidance document requiring the agency. Um, we will spell out in the guidance document. The regulation requires the agency to issue the guidance document. The guidance document will spell out how we will take a look at prior regulations, but it does not open up prior regulations. For example, um, um, for 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 in, for any for um, for cafe, for example, it will require us to take a look at how we develop the cost benefit analysis and prior cafe standards to help guide us on how we address cost benefits for future cafe standards. It does not require us to go back and revisit an existing regulation, but it will require us to examine how we did it in the past, help guide how we will write the cost benefit analysis in the future. So I've got a question. Are, are, you, are you concerned about the Congressional Review Act in regards to this new rule? I, I'm not. Um, it, the Congressional Review Act actually does not apply to this um, because it is a, a regulation on um, agency procedures and it is not considered significant rulemaking on the dollar amount either. So under both of those tests, um, it would not, the Congressional Review Act would not apply to this. Um, so um, this will become final upon publication in the Federal Register, um, which hopefully will be shortly. The Federal Register has actually been moving fairly quickly the last few weeks. Um, so it will become final upon publication and the Congressional Review Act um, is not applicable for this regulation. Again, because it is not um, financially significant under the definition of the Congressional Review Act. And um, it's also an internal procedural rulemaking for the agency. And internal procedural rulemakings are not, um, or do not fall under the Congressional Review Act. So, so given it's a procedural rule, um, are there objective requirements in the rule that the, I mean, you talked about it being enforceable, but are there very clear objective requirements um, to make sure that the agency um, doesn't have the discretion to kind of get away from some of the requirements or some of the um, details of the rule? Things that you can really, go ahead, sir. Sure. And no, it is, it absolutely is enforceable since um, the, you know, the requirement in the past under the executive order was not enforceable. The agency's feet could never be held um, to the fire. It will be enforceable because by regulation, we're requiring the analysis to be included in the preamble of all future regulations. So if the agency fails to include um, the cost benefit analysis um, following our regulation today, then anyone could then take us to court in order to include the analysis in the rulemaking. So it is now, it will be an enforceable action so that the cost benefit analysis will must be done. It must be done following the guidelines that we put in the regulation. And it does create an enforceable action. And anyone, if, if um, 
if you're if a trade association or say the NRDC is on, is not satisfied with the cost benefit analysis in the future rulemaking, they will be able to take that to court and it will be an actionable item. And, and you know, I mentioned the final rule and just as a proposed rule, you're basically taking best practices on benefit cost analysis that already existed. I mean, that's really what's going on. You're just making sure that past practice is just applied. And I think that's just an important exactly. point. Okay. Yes. There certainly have been rulemakings in the past that have followed all the procedures we've, we put in this rulemaking. I certainly hope and I believe that all of our rulemakings under this administration have followed the cost benefit analysis that we're now requiring going forward. Um, but it, you know, there's certainly been great examples in the past. Um, I, I think, um, you know, well, just across the board, um, in, in our in our PM analysis, our PM rule this this week, um, we had cost benefit. Well, it, well, actually, for the NACs, you would, it would be the implementation, which is a perfect example because we we take um, we only apply the cost benefit analysis in the sections of the Clean Air Act that re require it, and for the NACs, it does not require the cost benefit analysis because we're not supposed to take costs into account. So that is a perfect example on how we um, that rulemaking would not have changed with this in place. Is is what I meant to say. Um, so it's a perfect example on how it's not going to impact public health regulations that uh, it would not apply to that particular one. But the CAFE standard, for example, cost-benefit analysis applies to the CAFE rule. Um, it would apply to the EGU rule as well. So um, we have used cost-benefit analysis, and I, I certainly hope and believe that we have we have followed um, all of the cost-benefit directives um, that we are now requiring going forward. Um, but this is again going to cement this so that we do require ourselves to follow it. And please tell me this is right. If I recall in 2012 with the MATS rule, the EPA was, I mean, and this is kind of what went to the court, they didn't want to take costs into account. Um, the costs were about $9.6 billion or so, and they didn't think the costs needed to be considered, and they were just looking at the, the benefit side. And the, the Michigan versus EPA case, the Supreme Court case, basically said, no, you have to consider the cost. And that kind of shows kind of how extreme the benefit cost analysis has been in the past. And is that right? Am I explaining that correctly? You, you are. I thought the cost was actually higher than that, but um, you are explaining it correctly. Absolutely. And again, that, that, is, um, that is the poster child for how not to do cost benefit analysis. They did not take the cost into account. And they attributed all the benefits uh, basically to particular matter, which was already being regulated under several other regulations. Um, and so it's, it, it was, it, they, pl they played games with the benefits numbers on the PM for that regulation as well. Um, so yes, they, they did the, they conducted the benefit side. They, they didn't conduct it um, in, in a uh, straightforward manner and they, they ignored the benefits on the mercury and on the cost side, they did not take costs into account. And you're absolutely right. The Supreme Court remanded it back to the agency. And at the time, you know, the EPA administrator said, um, well, it doesn't matter because the industry has already complied with it anyway. Um, and what we're trying to do is stop things like that from happening in the future. The cost benefit analysis will now be required in the preamble of all rules going forward. This is kind of related uh, a question we're getting here, um, some of the things we talked about, but how easily can a possible Biden administration skirt the openness of having the cost benefit analysis? 
Well, um, I would hope that they believe in transparency. And that's what this regulation is all about, is being transparent with the American public and explaining to the American public what they're doing. Um, so I, I would hope that, you know, a future administration um, of either party will want to follow this regulation because it's about explaining to the American public um, the, the rationales behind the regulatory decisions. It's basically taking, we're doing the same thing on science transparency. It's taking the regulatory process out of this uh, prover proverbial smoke-filled back room. Um, and I can understand why some people in DC, some, um, some activists don't want that to happen because they want rules to be, they want their pet project rule to be put forward regardless of what the costs are or the benefits. And what we are doing is requiring that to be transparent. Um, I, you know, a future administration won't be able to ignore this. They will have to take into account the cost benefits and the preamble of the regulations. If not, anyone could then sue the agency for failure to follow this regulation. I suppose a future administration could try to do away with this regulation that you have to go through the notice and comment process to do that, um, which I think would be rather ironic for anyone to step in and say, we're gonna do a regulatory process to take transparency away from the American public. Um, I, I can't see anybody being able to do that with a straight face. I, I can't see anyone saying, I wanna return back to the time when things were done in secret and done in back rooms where only a few people from maybe a couple of environmental groups or a couple of industry trade associations were in the know as far as what the regulation did and meant. What this does today is open it all up to everyone, including groups like Heritage Foundation, um, but to the American public, private citizens, so that they understand the costs and benefits of all of our regulations. I can't see another, I can't see a future administration wanting to go through a rulemaking process to remove transparency. And this rule, I mean, it doesn't lead to any predetermined outcome. It's not favoring one no. side or another. And I think that's also really important. Uh, you know, it's Absolutely. Just... And the administrator would have the discretion, the, the, the benefits, uh, the costs could uh, outweigh the, the benefits in a, in a rulemaking. That's, we're not, um, you, you know, that was, we received comments from some people wanted us to only promulgate a regulation that said that the benefits must outweigh the cost. We did not go that far. All we're doing is requiring an accounting of both the costs and the benefits to be made public. So you're absolutely right that this will this does not um, predetermine outcomes for future rulemakings. Um, a future administrator would be absolutely free to move forward with a regulation where the costs are greater than the benefits. Um, so, you know, a future administration could could do the match rule from the Obama administration as long as they spelled it out in the preamble exactly what they're doing. I don't. Be interested to see that happen, um, but you know that this rule does not require um, benefits to outweigh the costs. What this rule does is require that the agency explain the costs and explain the benefits up front in clear language using standardized process, so that you can compare from regulation to regulation the costs and the benefits. And I can understand why some people aren't happy with this because they may have a pet um, regulation that they want to move forward with even though it doesn't provide benefits and they don't, and they want to try to hide the benefits or I'm not hide the benefits. They want to try to hide the costs um, and they don't want to conduct the benefit analysis. This will stop that from happening going forward. 
A real quick question from the audience. Um, when will the final sign rule be posted on the EPA's website? I believe it will be today. It may already be up, but it's going to be today. I'm told that it is up. I'm getting hand signals in the room saying it is up already on our website. Um, I, I actually signed the rule last night, so it, it is up. It's a slightly different question. Um, so earlier this week, there was a new report suggesting that an EPA tool known as the Environmental Benefits Mapping and Analysis Program Community Edition underestimates healthcare costs related air pollution by as much as 40%. Can, can you comment on that? Sure. You know, we just, um, that was done by a group called the Analysis Group. Um, we didn't know they were actually working on that um, until it came, they came out with their study on Monday. So my staff is reviewing the study. I've, I've read some press reports on it. Um, I understand that it was it was it was not funded by any groups. It was that they took it um, they took it upon themselves to do the report. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they what they said. And it's um, the timing is great because um, just a couple of months ago, I actually asked our um, SAB, the Science Advisory Board, to look at this same issue. Um, so we, I've already you know we've had issues with this method um, and we've identified issues with this method. Um, and so we already asked our science advisory board to take a close look at it. And so I'm sure that this new analysis will help the science advisory board in their analysis. Um, but this was something that we had already identified as a problem and it asked our science advisory board to, to examine it. So uh, it's, it's um, I think they're supposed to complete their review sometime in the spring. So um, it'd be interesting to see what our science advisory board says on the issue. But I think this report is going to help them um, focus some of their um, some of their um, work on this subject, but this was a, this was a problem that we had already identified um, prior to this report coming out. Now we didn't know the report was coming out, but I certainly welcome any group and any organization to take a hard look at how we calculate costs or benefit, because whenever we have outside organizations doing that, outside economists, it helps um, better inform our process. But we are looking across the board at how we calculate benefits and costs all the time, and we are, are making changes and, and doing reviews. But this was an issue that I'd already asked the Science Advisory Board to take a look at. So, you know, having a report and getting outside expertise like this and, and feedback is kind of plays into the whole idea of why you need to have transparency so that the public can actually, and experts can provide information to the EPA so you can make better decisions. Is that right? Absolutely. And I, I you know I would wonder whether or not, um, and I, I don't know much about analysis group. I understand they do very good work. I believe the two researchers who did this were both um, healthcare um, um, experts. So they were looking at, at the cost in terms of, of, of public health. Um, I wonder if, um, if we had implemented our new regulation in the past, if that would have given them better data um, for their analysis, and I can be interested to see if, if you know, in the future, if they go back and take a look at um, rulemakings that we issue over the next four to you know, four to eight years, whether or not that would it, that would change their analysis. Because I I'm, I am curious whether or not they had enough of our data and analysis to complete their research. Um, but we, absolutely, the the more we the more transparent we are, the more out, uh, outside groups like the analysis group. Trade associations, environmental groups will be able to better analyze our regulations. So I want to briefly touch on another rule um, and some of the things that the 
you've accomplished over the last few years. So and you referenced this, that the, the agency has been trying to promote transparency in the agency's use of science. I mean, after all, the public should be able to evaluate how decisions are being made. Could you elaborate on these efforts and um, give us an idea when we might see a, a final science transparency rule? Sure, we are, we are working um, very hard on finalizing the science transparency rule. And we went out for public comments twice on that rule. Um, we put out the original science transparency rule, proposed rule. Then we went out with a, a, a for supplemental. We've gotten, uh, we actually got more comments on science transparency than we did cost benefit. And I think this science transparency effort is probably mischaracterized even more in the press and by environmental groups than the cost benefit analysis or the cost benefit rule has been. The science transparency is all about, again, shedding light on the science that we use for our regulatory decisions. So what that is, that is all I'm trying to accomplish here is to force the agency to explain to the American public every time we do a regulation, what are the costs of the regulation, what are the benefits of the regulation, and what is the science that we use to make the decisions that we're making in the regulation. The, the, it, does not, um, it, it does not veto or, or do away with prior scientific studies like the six city study, we've been accused of that. It would not do away with that study at all. We would still continue to use that. Um, as far, you know, I, there's been some researchers that have said that, um, you know, the health-based data on, on people wouldn't be allowed to be used. That's, that's preposterous. The, um, the FDA, um, NIH, they, they have um, science transparency and they're able to mask individual health data for, for individuals under HIPAA rules. And we can certainly do that for any studies that we have that have human health data in them that could easily be done. Um, but what's important is to make sure that the science is out there so that other outside groups can then take a look at the at our regulatory decisions and take a look at the science we use and see if it can be replicated. You know, it's, it goes further than peer review. Peer review is, is one side, but peer review doesn't look at the availability of the science and it doesn't make the science available to the American public. And again, this is all about transparency. If there is a scientific study under our proposals um, that where the data is just not available, it's an important um, scientific study that's important for regulation. The administrator under our proposals would be able to still use those studies if they are if they're um, if they're vital to a regulation. So there there is um, process for that as well. Um, I, I will say that we've taken a look at the comments we've received. Um, we're actually the science transparency regulation hopefully will be unveiled in a couple of weeks. Um, and um, we've just to kind of do a little teaser on that. Um, we actually are, are narrowing it a little bit more than what we um, proposed in the uh, in the um, in the um, supplemental. So you know we've taken comments. We're we're hearing the comments that have been made, and we're making sure that we're not going to exclude important science for regulations in the future. But we still want to make sure that that science is available and transparent to the American public. Thanks. And uh, so th there's been some criticism of the EPA regarding enforcement efforts. Um, but I, you know, a lot of it, I think the information, the criticism has been misleading. Uh, it ignores the importance of improved compliance and enforcement data. C could you explain the EPA's enforcement record? Absolutely. It's not, it's, it's, it's not just misleading reporting on enforcement. It's outright um, failure on reporters 
Um, and I would call out probably the AP is one of the worst examples of this, um, where they just completely ignore our enforcement statistics and our enforcement data. And we actually have collected twice as much in civil and criminal penalties during our first four years as the Obama-Biden administration did during their first four years, twice as much on enforcement penalties. On the criminal side, starting in 2011, um, there is a downward trend on all criminal statistics across the board. We reversed that. For the last two years, every single criminal statistic, as far as cases open, cases prosecuted, have gone up. We have reversed that trend, and we did that because under the Obama administration, they decimated the criminal enforcement team, and we're an all-time low for a um, number of enforcement employee, criminal enforcement employees. We have been hiring on that side, and we've increased our enforcement. We were accused this year on, because of COVID when we provided, um, when we told companies that if they could not report their reports to us, this bookkeeping reports, that they could report late as long as they explained why COVID made them report it late. Almost no one took advantage of that. But this was enforcement discretion that was very limited. It sunsetted in August. And no, um, no one was allowed to increase their emissions. At the same time, we increased our, um, we had enforcement going um, full blown throughout the COVID, uh, making sure that people were um, following the regulations um, and the requirements, and there was no increase in pollution. Um, the enforcement discretion we provided this year was much less than, for example, what the state of New Jersey provided to industry in New Jersey during COVID. And, and for some unforeseen reason, New Jersey DEQ, um, I believe their AG maybe, um, criticized our enforcement discretion policy when it was much less than what New Jersey did. Um, they actually allowed some industries to increase their emissions during COVID. We did not. No one was allowed to increase their emissions due to COVID this year. All that they were, you know, some companies are required to, to submit forms to us on a weekly, monthly, uh, quarterly basis, depending on their permits. Um, they didn't have employees in in March and April in order to fill out those forms. So we told them if you're going to be late on filling out standard record keeping forms, as long as you explain why COVID was the reason, um, you could be late. You still had to submit them to us and you still had to fulfill your obligations on your emissions levels. And if people increase their emissions, we did go after them. But our enforcement record is much stronger than the previous administration across the board. And it, there is it's not just misleading articles, but outright um, falsehoods. How about that? Outright falsehoods in some of the articles have been written on the enforcement side. So our, our last question, what are you most proud of, um, of you know, during your tenure at the EPA? I am, I am so proud on so many levels. Um, we have completed, I, I believe, more major regulations in a four-year period than any prior administration going back to, except for probably the first administration. But at the same time, we've improved, the, um, we've improved how we operate internally. We implement the lean management system across the board. We are getting, um, we reduced our permit backlog. We reduced the permit that we reduced the backlog for the state implementation plans. We reduced the backlog for the water permits, the TMDLs, 99% um, improvement um, or elimination of the backlog on the TMDLs. Um, we've speeded up um, how, how um, the enforcement reports and getting those out to people. But at the end of the day, 
I'm proud that we have reduced pollution across the board and that we have um, also reduced the regulatory burden on the public. And we have proven that you know, we've reduced the regulatory burden at $100 billion. At the same time, air pollution is down, water is cleanest levels than it's ever been, and more Superfund sites are getting cleaned up at a faster rate than ever before. So I'm, I'm proud of our overall, you know, the fact that we have proven that you can reduce pollution and you can reduce regulatory burdens at the same time. I'm very proud of that. Administrator Wheeler, I want to thank you for joining us today and, and for your leadership at EPA. And I want to thank, thank everybody, you. you know, and I want to thank everybody for participating in today's program and asking such great questions. And uh, once again, today's webinar has been recorded and will be on heritage.org in 48 hours. Also, please be on the lookout for future heritage webinars on heritage.org. Please stay safe and have a great holiday season. And we look forward to seeing you soon in person in 2021. Thank you.